Hi everyone, bonjour tout le monde. My name is Fabiola and I was one of the first people to be interviewed in Jazz Avec Moi, so I'm very happy to be back and to be the one interviewing Michaela today. Yeah, exciting! <laughs> Welcome to Jazz Avec Moi, the podcast where we will talk about everything from life, career, and entrepreneurship from a TCK perspective. My name is Michaela Mutoni, and I will be your host. Hi. Hi, Fabiola. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? Great. How is the, you know, the confinement? How is the quarantine treating you? Uh, to be honest, la, I am ready to be done with the confinement. I'm over it. It's nice outside. You know, there's a park right across of my house and we can't go there. We can't sit in it. And so like today was really nice and I was like, oh, it would be so nice to just go chill in the park. But nope, we can't sit in the park. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like we're not ready for summer. Like it's going to no. be the, I think that's going to be the hardest part of this. It's like, yeah. yes, slowly stepping into warmer weather yeah yeah so whatever but you know what i'm healthy i have a house i have food i have a job so yeah a lot of things yeah we have to give thanks for all the all of the good things that we have today it's uh it's um it's different because i'm the one who gets to interview you i know i'm a little bit scared I'm gonna I'm gonna try and be nice, <laughs> and um, I mean, yeah, you, you've been nice to us. You know, you've been nice to every single people that you've interviewed. So I'll, I'll model that kindness for you for Thank sure. You. Thank you. I appreciate um, it. It's so interesting to have that, like the table reversed, <laughs> the seat right? reversed. Is, how do you yeah, feel? feel? How do you feel about that? I'm actually very happy. I feel like um, I've been wanting to learn more about like your journey and I'm pretty sure that a lot of people have been also wanting yeah. to learn more. Um, yeah. It's really, it's a gift to be able to hear you interview people who are inspiring, but also I feel like you're also so inspiring and I feel like being able to hear from your journey and what has pushed you to like create this yeah. po- podcast, but also the, like what, what kind of like pushed this podcast to happen. It's all of the things that I, I guess I've been, yeah, I've been having on my mind. So like yeah. being able to ask it to you directly, be very yeah honored and, and, uh, wow. and I'm very happy. Yeah. Thank you. So let's start with my first question. I promise I'm going to be kind, but you know, I like complex questions. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm mentally prepared. I, I am mentally prepared, so let's go. From a lot of the interviews that I've heard, you know, you've always made sure to center this, this the third culture kid impact on people and like hear how we had people who grew up in different countries and who identify as different nationalities and have different identities. And I feel like, it's also like what kind of pushed you to explore that is also because you identify as also a third culture kid. And yeah. I wanted to know how has it been to like have different homes and where are your different homes? Wish it was when you think yeah. of home and where are the places where you feel the most at peace? And uh, like, that's my first question. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're starting, we're going in it from the get go. <laughs> <laughs> On the black path. <laughs> no. But it's true, you're right. I think that 
yeah, definitely the whole third culture. I do identify as a third culture kid. And for people who don't know a third culture kid, because I've been doing a lot of research on it lately, actually. Well, now we're adults, right? So we're not kids. So the new term for us is adult third <laughs> culture kids. So ATCK. But these are people that grew up in a country that is not their passport country in their developmental phase. And I think mm. it's important to say that because usually a lot of people, let's say, could move around countries. But if they move as adults, say mm-hmm. if you move as 18 year old or 20 year old, then you already have your identity formed. If Let's say if I had mm-hmm. grown up in Rwanda until I was 20. Mm-hmm. Then I would say like, oh my God, I'm, I don't know if you can define a percentage of Rwandanness, but then I would say like, oh yeah, I'm fully Rwandan and I have not been impacted by something else because that's all you've known. Everybody around you acts the same and mm-hmm. it's your frame of mind. Whereas if you start moving around when you're younger, well, you're still building that character. You're still building that identity. And so mm-hmm. then if you are surrounded by many diverse people, and for us, it was diversity in, in, in nationalities and in cultures. Then you're influenced by them. And you accept many different things that maybe your home culture would not have accepted. And I think what can make it hard, going back to my definition of a third culture kid, is that, well, you've left your home culture and then mm-hmm. you live in a different culture, but you don't already fit in 100%. So then you create your own culture, third culture, which kind of takes a little bit of how you identify and what you like. So I definitely feel that way because, I mean, for the people that don't know, I'm from Rwanda, but I was born in Burundi. And mm-hmm. we, we moved to Rwanda after the genocide. And then we lived in Germany. We lived in Senegal. And really like Germany and Senegal were like mini worlds in themselves because we went to an international school. And so at an international mm-hmm. school, you have so many nationalities as well. So that kind of shows you 50 different versions of the world. If you look at all of these different ways, and everybody in their own culture thinks they're right, then the question is like, well, who's right at the end, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And then coming to Canada. So going back to the question no, of like where any- is home, for now, I have two homes. Mm-hmm. I, like, obviously, I identify as Rwandan because that's, that's what I am. Also because parents play a big role into shaping your identities too, right? Yes. So it's mm-hmm. easy to feel Rwandan. Although you've lived in Senegal, you've lived in Germany as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still in, in Burundi, like you were still living under Rwandi's roof, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. hundred percent. And also that's where my family is, right? Like all of my cousins, mm-hmm. all of my aunts, my uncles, the people that I grew up with before we moved, they're all in Rwanda. So it's still home. But I also do consider Canada home because I feel mm-hmm. like that's where I grew up. You know, that's where I formed my own identity as Michaela, like by herself without her parents and what, how do I want to live the life that I lead and accepting that there is that duality of yes I can be Rwandan and I can be Canadian makes me comfortable with myself because maybe there are days where I will not act Rwandan or there are days where I will not act Canadian. Hearing you it made me think of being a, ter- a third culture kid can be shaped by your upbringing like being raised in different countries, like in, until you're 18, but also yeah. this idea of fragmented identities also is possible when you leave your parents' home, right? And when you have to kind of define your own self 
and yeah. uh, think of what you want for yourself. Like not having those um, repères, you know, your own mm-hmm. uh, criteria, your own, like everything mm. is, has to be reshaped and rethink and rebuild that whether it's before, I feel like the impact of living when you're like a teenager or when you're, uh, you know, in primary school in different countries kind of shape you, but also like yeah. after 18 too, like it's also, if you're leaving your, if you're leaving like the motherland for the first time, it's also like a, a very interesting journey as well in terms of building your identity and, and hearing you saying that you felt Canadian and if you've been here for what, for the last 10 years, right? Yeah, or a 12. Bit, 12 years. So yeah, I guess it's, it might be the place where you've been the most, uh, yeah <laughs> that's very true actually i was thinking about that last time i was like yeah i've been in north america if you take out the u.s so i've been 10 years in canada two years in the u.s but the 10 years mm-hmm. in canada is the longest i've been in one country i'm interested coming here and navigating around yeah building your own identity and going to school and graduating and also like did an mba in, in new york and then came back here and then ended up in working in, in the tech industry yeah yes right now and um, I'm just curious, when you go, look back at your professional journey and personal journey, do you feel like it's very linear? Or would, or did you feel like a lot of you took different roads that kind of le- led you and shaped you into the person that you are today? And um, was it a linear uh, journey to get, no. to, to get where you, you are? No. Like if you had told me 10 years ago when I came to Canada that I would work for a tech company, I would have been like, yeah, right. <laughs> because I thought that... <laughs> Because I didn't know what a tech company is, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's also part of why I do the podcast, but we'll get to that. Like, it wasn't in my frame of potential careers to have. I am not an engineer. I have no interest in software and I have no interest in computer science or anything like that. So for me, a tech company, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. I didn't want to work in it. It was more that I've always been a person who is very curious and asks a lot of Mm -hmm. questions and I don't really limit myself in what I can explore. So Mm -hmm. like my first job first, part of the reason I did business school is actually because I didn't know what I wanted to do, (laughs) but I just Mm -hmm. knew that, well, everything is a business more or less. We all have to produce something. We all have to get paid. So I knew that by going to business school, I would learn the fundamentals of how an organization run, and then I would find a job. And that's what happened. And then my first job, it was as an inventory planner for a retail store when Target opened. But mm-hmm. that came from curiosity as well, because I had a part-time job when I was in school and I worked for a women's clothing store. And mm-hmm. then sometimes we would get these amazing, beautiful pieces. And then other times we would get the crappiest clothes. <laughs> I, I know that. Yeah, I've also worked in a women's store. I, I get yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I would be thinking to myself, how did the person who chose this could also mm-hmm. choose this? It doesn't make any sense to me, you know? Then I was like, okay, fine. Then I want to work at a headquarters of a store because mm-hmm. I wanted to understand how tr- things were made. The like, yeah, I was like, how are you making the choices? How how mm-hmm. How are you sending what you're sending and why are you sending it in the quantities that you're sending it in? Because some things would sell out so quickly and other things would just be sitting there forever. And so that's how I started looking at retail stores. And then, mm-hmm. and then that's when I got my first job. After that, I was tired of it because I was like, well, I'm working all these hours. We're kind of failing at this. 
let me go back to business school. Like, I don't want to be in retail forever because I mm-hmm. just felt like I wanted to do something with a little bit more purpose. And, you know, when the day is tough, like, you've been working 80-hour week, 70 hours week, am I really going to be pushing diapers and, like, shower gel? And <laughs> I was planning inventory for stores, and I was like, this is pointless. If it's not at Target, they can go get it at Walmart, or they can go get it at Farmapri, you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that passion that buyers had mm-hmm. or that some people had, and I was like, it's not for me. I want to get back to one of the things that you said, which uh, was about being able to work at the place where the choices are made. Yeah. And it's interesting because often we, we don't realize that sitting at the table where the d- decisions are made and the choices are made are very important places where to be in and also places where we build our passion and we, and we build the understanding of what we don't like and what we don't want to do. Yeah. And I feel like that's what I'm hearing <laughs> you, you say yeah, that, oh, sure. at, at some point. When I got to that table and I did my work, you know, expanded and I felt new competences, I realized that, okay, that, that was great. Now I'm, what's next? You know? Yeah, I don't want to be at this table. I want another table. You know? Yeah, you want another table. Yeah. And I, often like when I think of like professional development and professional journey, I feel like it's a succession of like different tables, but also a succession of, you know, we often talk about what worked and how we got from a point to another. And I think one of the things that we don't, that we're maybe not socialized to talk about more is failure, right? And I was seeing this thing today where this woman was posting the CV of her failure, right? So all of the programs that she didn't get accepted into, all of the job that she applied that she didn't get. Often when you look at people who are very inspiring, a lot of the things that make them inspiring is that we don't see is the failure that they had to encounter, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious on in knowing how did your past failure and, and current failure shaped you into being who you are as a professional, but also maybe as a, yeah, as you, as a woman, as a, as a child culture adult. <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. Oh God. Okay. So my biggest failure, now looking back, I'm like, I was so harsh on myself, but the time I considered my biggest failure is when I didn't get a job after I graduated from my MBA in 2016. So for context, everything until then has been going great. I graduated with a job from my undergrad. I was one of those mm-hmm. kids who got their offers in November. So wow. when I was going, yeah. <laughs> so I was, wow. I was <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was chilling. I was chilling my last semester. I was like, I just need to pass. I have a job. I just need to graduate. I no stress. Life was good. Then mm-hmm. I, when I worked at Target, I realized like, oh, I'm really good at this job. So I was a high performer always well. Then I was like, okay, let me go do my MBA. Uh, I don't want to stress myself too much. Let me just do the GMAT once. Apply to top three I want to go to. If one accepts me, I'll go to that one. If they don't accept me, then okay, I'll do the GMAT again and I'll take this more seriously. Mm-hmm. Then I got into the school I wanted to go to anyways. So I went. <laughs> okay, wow. <laughs> Up until then, life is great. I feel like, you know, I'm a boss. <laughs> life then, was on your side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, life was on my side. And then 2016 happened. So I was graduating, okay? And my plan going to the U.S. had been explore, figure out what you want to do. And I was like, okay, I want to go in tech now and get a job. Where, but where then, did that idea of going to tech, like, where did it, how come from? It, how, yeah. So once again, I knew that, I don't want to do retail anymore, but I didn't know what do I want to do next. 
So I was like, mm-hmm. okay, let me go to New York because in New York, I can figure out everything. If I want to do nonprofit, I can. If I want to do marketing in some beauty company, I can. Yeah, yeah, I can do anything. Mm-hmm. So I explored. That's what I did when I was there. Like one year I worked at the nonprofit foundation. One year I did a consulting gig in education. My internship was then at a tech company. That's what happened. And I was part of this program to move back to Africa where they basically were training people who were educated here to move back to an African country. And for me, because I'm East African, I was going to move back to Kenya. Well, move back. That's I've never a very great Kenya. program. Yeah. I feel like I've yeah, never yeah. heard about that. Yeah. So actually, so this particular one was with IBM. And IBM has a program that they call Summit. And it's basically to train their sales force. Mm-hmm. So had I accepted that job, I would have gone to Kenya and become like a salesperson for IBM in Kenya. Like, what made you re- refuse the, the position? The Kenyan salary with my student loans did not align. Because <laughs> part of okay, what yeah. they wanted to do for the program is that they're trying to find Africans so that they don't hire you as an expat, right? They hire you as a local. Yeah. The most African thing, I can get hired as an East African person. And they pay you well for a Kenyan. It's not the same as if I did not have a Rwandan passport, you know, like if I was yes, a Canadian. And also like you're just getting from an MBA school and it's like, it comes with like a lot of pressure. And also I'm sure that it comes also with some expectation around money and all the money that you invested in school as well. It's like something that you want to be able to kind of get back. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't terrible. It was like the first disappointment. I was like, okay, fine. So I can't move to Africa now because I have these student loans that I took. So I have to pay them off first or find a balance. So I said no to the offer. Thanks, guys. It's a great offer, but I can't live on this. It's not going to work. And then I realized that, oh, maybe if I wanted to move back, I should have just moved back. I didn't need an MBA if it was to go be paid like a local. So then I was like, mm-hmm. okay, well, let me just stay here then and find a job in tech here. And the reason I settled on tech, sorry, to answer your question is I was trying to find what is the industry that is going to be the most impactful in Mm. the coming years and going back again to being at the table. And I had seen that nonprofit wasn't it. And I am a results oriented person. (laughs) And what I don't like about nonprofits is that you are dependent on your donors. And if I am a philanthropic person this year, I can choose to donate to the education of young women. And then next year, I will choose to donate to drugs for malaria. You know what I mean? Something like that. Yeah, I can just choose that. to take the yeah. money from point A to point B. And me, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. <laughs> it's Yes, it's always, I think, like, like donation kind of varied depending on like different variables. Like it can be like, the for instance, COVID right now, like a lot of donors are like yeah. shifting their attention to release programs. And it's it takes a lot of work to build a very strong relationship with donors coming from a person who works in nonprofit. Exactly. <laughs> so it is possible to secure funding, but it takes a lot of commitment and it takes a lot of investment in relationship with donors for it to be sustainable. Yeah. So I, I get that it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it, is, it is extremely uh, demanding. Yeah. Whereas in business, if your business is viable, you'll be fine. You'll make money and you'll stay. And if you manage to remain relevant and manage your cash flow well and how <laughs> remain you relevant. Manage, yeah. Because that's also <laughs> another problem in business, right? Yeah. You'll be fine. So I was like, okay, fine. So I'm staying in business. I'm not going in nonprofit. So then what else? Well, tech is going to be the most influential player in the next 10, 20, 30 years. 
So I was like, so let me try to get a job in tech. And that's how I had then interned with IBM. And then when I interned at IBM, I realized that there are all these other jobs that are non-science related, that are mm. not the engineering. You still need people to sell the technology. You still need people to yeah. develop the marketing strategies to explain how the solutions work. And I was like, okay, so let me try mm-hmm. to find the place for me here. But then I couldn't get a job, Fabiola. I couldn't. And part of the <sighs> problem is... Well, I was an American and I wasn't even Canadian. Mm. I was still So you were looking into the American market at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was the first big disappointment because I just kept hearing, no, Mm. I must have applied to a thousand jobs. It was a big crush to my ego. I was humbled. I was so humbled. (laughs) I think it's it's ego, but it's also how do you, I think something that we don't talk a lot is like it crushed egos, but it also crushed mental health to remain motivated and to remain extremely inspired and be ready to go to interviews and not hear back and and I guess in the in the US context that you also have to wait for someone to sponsor your position, right? Yeah. Exactly. And um it puts you in a very tricky position because it's not not only do you have to wait for them to give you the job, but it's also like, yeah, it's the job but also the sponsor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. and there's so many interviews I went to that were so interesting. All of these jobs. And then it was like Nope, nope. And then every time we'll be like, so what's uh, your uh, status? What's your visa status? It's like that question mm. came. I was like, it's all over. And it goes back again to me. I'm always looking for who are the decision makers. Where, where yes. are these decisions made? Because if you look at the Canadian market, most companies are American. And mm-hmm. usually in Canada, it's usually the sales offices that we're selling the product or marketing the product. But we're not decision makers. The decision mm. makers usually sit in the US. And so I wanted to be part of the decision makers (laughs) yes and also like here were you again pushed to live in another country you know (laughs) and it's like when we're like we've we've traveled we've moved from homes to home we've moved from places to places and we were trying to build sustainability in our life to try to establish ourselves in a country and then again you know (laughs) it's like no we you you haven't moved enough (laughs) yeah exactly Also, funny enough, I think New York for me was the first place where I felt truly alone. The whole vulnerability of being a foreigner. Because when I came to Montreal, I already had PR and I had family here. And so Mm. it was a safe place. I wasn't worried about student visas. I didn't feel that stress of international students. Am I going to get a job so I can keep my work permit? I didn't feel that the first time Mm -hmm. around. Everything Mm -hmm. was smooth. Whereas in the U.S., it was like, no, this is what it means to be an international student trying to get a exactly. job, you know? Yeah, and it's like, a different reality. Yeah, and this is what it means to have to go stay with your friends for a couple of months. because And also, like, right? fill out massive administration form that takes, get lost sometimes. That <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that was my biggest failure. And I think it was a big hit to my ego because then I had to come back to Montreal. And for me, I... Oh, I hope people don't hate me for this. But <laughs> I've never really liked Montreal that much. I'm not a big Montreal fan. Girl, I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> I feel you on this one. <laughs> you know, I have this saying that says, I want to leave Montreal, but Montreal doesn't want me to leave. You know, Montreal doesn't want to leave me. That I've been trying to break up Montreal, but it's just not happening, you know? Yeah, so I just, uh, yeah, like I just thought the city is small because I feel like 
I, I want to live like a bold life, you know, yeah. and I want to live a life where there's like so many opportunities and people just see everything. Whereas I feel like the pace of Montreal or the pace of Quebec in general, is like a bit slower. It's a bit more chill. So by coming to Montreal, after having lived in Toronto, after having lived in New York, I was just like, je retourne au village, quoi, you know? So I was, <laughs> so I was really upset by that. What job am I going to get here that is going to fulfill my ambitions? You know what I mean? The market is not in Montreal. But then I guess God has a way of doing things because I ended up getting a job <laughs> that helped me get the job that I have now, which I love. When, when you moved to Montreal, so, to you like getting your first job, like the job that you have right now, like how long did it take? Oh, so I moved back in December and I got my job in April, but even then, right? And I think this is important to say because you have to be a person of conviction. So when I say that I didn't get a job, it's not 100% true. It's, I didn't get a job. How long, how, how long did you stay without a job? Like how long, like how, like from the moment where you graduated until you got actually your job? 11 months. 11 months. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And right. that's why you have to know what you want. So for example, I had rejected the IBM offer because I was like, it's not going to pay my bills. It's not going to work. I'm not going to go live in Kenya and then spend 90% of my salary, yeah. pay my student loans, right? And then I had gotten this other offer from this tiny company that wanted to pay me 30K in New York City. I was like, guys, 30K? <laughs> we, we didn't, no, we're not, we're not leaving like grad school to go suffer. We're not, we're not doing that. You know, it's like, we're, we're not like, doing that. No. Like, grad school in New York? <laughs> You're already living in such like a very tiny apartment and like you're watching out for all of your expenses. So you're not going to leave that to go live like, you know, I like that. The guy, yeah. Yeah. When he was telling me that, when he was telling me how much the, the job costs, you could tell he was ashamed because he knew. He was like, you just, <laughs> you just graduated from one of the top MBA programs and I'm paying you 30K in New York City. He just knew he was being disrespectful. Seven, seven. Yes, he knew. <laughs> and then I had had potential recruiters reach out to me to say, come back in the retail space, uh, consumer product companies that sell to retailers because my experience would have been valuable. But I knew that that was in tech. So I, for me, it was like, I didn't need an MBA to do that. I didn't need to spend all these two years and all of this money to go back to another retail company yes. or to go for a consumer goods company I could have just directly done that after Target so kind of sticking to my guns even though it kind of broke my heart so on one end it was like you really need a job just take the job and on the other hand it was like but this is not what you went to school for like this is not the goal stick to the purpose but then when I got the job I wanted it was an entry-level job so mm. then this is when so then you applied, I had to you, you applied to it you applied to that entry-level job I did was it strategic Yes, because when you're looking for a job, people want you to have the skills to already do the job. That's always the challenge when somebody tries to switch, right? And so for me, when recruiters would reach out, where we're either like retail job, because I had retail experience, or yes. consumer, because you know how we can sell into retailers. Mm-hmm. Technology, they were like, you have no tech experience. Why would we hire you? <laughs> yeah, you're just out there trying to make it into the tech industry and people are just like, who are you? What are your skills? <laughs> what are your skills? And you say, I have transferable skills is not enough. They don't care about your transferable yeah. skills. And so when I took the entry-level job, it was because it was going to train me. It was an academy program, and they were going to teach me everything about the company. 
And I was just trusting mm-hmm. that I would go through that program. And then once I was in the company, once I had the foot in the door, mm-hmm. then I would figure it out because at least they would have opened the door because I wasn't even managing to yes. open the door. You know what I mean? So I was like, let me get in. And, we'll and sometimes, it yeah, in, in some contexts, you just need a door to be opened and then yeah. you're able to navigate around and create your own opportunities. And also just like people are able to recognize your true talent and your true competences. So I'm curious. And sometimes it doesn't work that way too, right? Because the structure are too rigid. So it's like yeah. you have to make sure that if you're doing, if you're using that strategy, it's inside a, an, like a company where like there is flexibility in moving around, right? And I'm curious to know if, like, was it easy to move around at some point um, when you got there? Yes and no. So, so I get in, <laughs> right? And I get in, and then I start with this guy who is like five years younger than me. So already I have, my ego is hurt because I'm like, oh my God, I'm starting at the same level as like this kid. And, and in terms of experience, how experienced uh, was that person? Well, they were, they were less experienced than me. Well, we, we just had this. No, they were less experienced than me. Let's be honest. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest. Let's be honest. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they were less experienced than me. So me, I start, right? And so me, motivate and everything. I do the job like six months. And then I start demanding things from my manager. So I had a promotion. This entry-level thing. This salary thing is not working. Mm. I need a promotion. And she's like, yeah, but you're a beginner. You're a junior. And she would always treat me like a junior. And she would always compare Mm. me to the junior guy. And I hated it. But then at the same time, you have to see, she doesn't care about my MBA. She doesn't care about my job. I'm the one who accepted this job. You know what I mean? So her, she's looking at it objectively. Well, you're in this job. Whether I think I am for the job or I'm better, she doesn't care. So yeah, it took us you still like, have to go through the same process than anyone else. Then, yeah. yeah, exactly. But I'm like, okay, fine. I'm going to prove you wrong. So I spent like a year and a half, do an excellent job to first prove my value add. My MBA is worth something. Mm-hmm. Because especially my manager, she wasn't a, a believer in MBAs or graduate school or anything like that. She was one of those people who are like, well, experience counts. Mm. And so, yes, experience does count, but you can't discount the education that I have received like yes. I didn't go spend all of this money to just party well some people do party but I actually studied some things well, no, yeah knowledge whether well, knowledge whether it comes from experience or, or whether it comes from an academic context still like is still valuable yeah yeah so then I just had to prove to her that no I think more than a junior person and so let's discuss I'm curious about that and I just want to pause maybe mm-hmm. here where it's like you're in a position where you have to prove when you applied to that position and you got the job, were you already anticipating that you'll have to prove that you were going to be a, a good employee? Or did you think that it was going to show naturally, right? And also, what does it mean when I'm a woman of color and I have to prove to people? It's not just about showing up to meetings and you know replying to emails on time. It's actually, I have to take big shots. I have to shoot my shots all the time, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, and actually... You touch an important point because so when I applied, my assumption was, yeah, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do what I usually do. And it's going to show itself. But it was a terrible first year. It didn't work that way because mm. so we were almost like consultants, right? So you get assigned to project and nobody mm. would assign me to projects because, mm. oh, you're the new person. And the guy that I was helping had been at the company for 20 years, had more experience than me, knew his thing. 
like back and forth, but I was the better presenter. They hired me because it was a, it was a pitch role and I was a better pitcher, but he had more knowledge than me, you know? So all the sales guy, and this is where the bias and being a black woman came in. Mm-hmm. They just didn't. And it's unconscious bias. Me, I truly believe in unconscious bias. And it's weird because in Canada, we don't acknowledge it and we don't talk about it. Yes. And yes. the reason that I knew it was unconscious bias is because I started once again at the same time with a junior guy who was white. And mm. so I am here more educated than you. More experienced, yeah, more qualified and more educated. Yeah. yeah. And, and he was really good at his job. I'm not saying he wasn't good at his job. He was really good at his job. But they were so much more likely to give him a chance to mm-hmm. pitch and to present than they were me. Mm-hmm. And I would just sit there like, what the hell is happening? And then when I would talk about it, it would be like, yeah, but you have to be more social. So like I had to come out of my shell. I had to go talk to the sales guy. It's I had so to go socialize just, like, like that. The are just making me laugh so much. It's like they're finding, like asking you to be more social has to do with you being a good presenter. You know, it's like it's yeah. two different skills that do not need to be combined for you to be a good presenter necessarily, you know? And also it's something they don't think about. I don't match culturally with these people. And this this is where the whole yes. culture kid comes in true, right? This kid, he's a white guy. He grew up going to the chalet like them. His kids like them. They can talk about beer pong. You know, we can go to a bar. They will all drink beer. He's like them, you know? And I think yeah. also the other thing that makes makes it even more sad is that they would see themselves in him. You know what I mean? Yeah. They'll be like, oh, he was like me when I was younger. Or, oh, he reminds me of my son. And I'm a black woman. I'm not your daughter. You know what I mean? I don't remind you of yourself. I don't remind you of yours. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, what are we going to talk about? And it's like, I would try no, no, to no. go socialize. So we would have like these team outings and everything. And I'll go socialize. And so I'm going to go sit on a table that's surrounded by eight white guys. And most of them oh are in goodness. their forties. <laughs> I have anxiety just. <laughs> and and I would sit at the table, and then it's like, "Hi, Michaela. Hi." And the conversation like dies, or they just don't talk to me, or they just don't acknowledge me. Yeah. And it's like, I know all of these people. They're not mean. There's just this unconscious bias. There's just this cultural divide. So, yeah, that we when don't you're know so how used to erase women, and especially like women of color and black women in spaces you don't even realize you think that it's normal that they're silent right you think that it's normal that they're not responding to like the inside jokes they're not able to understand them but also you don't make it your job to build a bridge you know you don't make it your job to to try to like explain oh what this is what we're talking about and this is what it means and and provide context right and they're so used to you know create like invisibilizing our existence that it yeah. creates a place of comfort, right? And that's why I was like, yeah. it gives me anxiety just to think about it because in, in that specific context, because I know that there can also like be in different contexts where there are people who share a different culture and are still going to build that bridge towards you, although you don't, have, you don't come from the same cultural context and you don't have the same references. So I can imagine how, yes, how stressful and how, how hard, and especially after like, those 11 months looking for a job, then you get one. And then you're working under someone who has less experience, less qualification. And I think you're touching like a very interesting point, which is often what I've realized also on my, in my journey is how much there is an acceptance for mediocrity, you know, oh, yeah, in, the work, in the work industry. <laughs> 
friend, but you can't have access. To, like you can be mediocre as as a black woman. It just doesn't no. work, you know. No. And so the few presentations I had. I would just kill them. Like, like you said, you can't be mediocre. I would just work well all the time, a hundred, 200% because I was like, yo, I can't afford not to be put on a project. And these people, they don't have pity on me. They're not going to be like, oh, this is, you know what I mean? And it just, they just don't realize. And mm. so I became really good at the job, but I hated the job. And I was like, I'm out. So I started looking like, and initially I had said, I'm just going to do this job for two years and then bounce. Mm-hmm. But I do like the company I'm at. So I was like, let me just find another job internally and change teams. But this is not the team for me. And this is not the job for me. And once again, that's also hard sometimes because I was really good at the job. So when I started telling my manager, I want to change. So now she's my friend because now you're good. Now you- mm-hmm, she doesn't think I'm junior, yeah. junior anymore. She thinks I'm a little bit above junior, you know. So now she starts like negotiating ways to for me to stay oh, the MBA team. becomes something that she can brags about to her other <laughs> oh yeah you know she also has an MBA <laughs> and it's like no okay let's at least give you this other role on the team and it's like I don't want this other role on the team I want a whole different team and this is always where you always have to judge right the company might have a policy of we'll let you move internally but your manager has mm-hmm. to agree and they have to want you to move because if you move technically it's like a loss for them but I was like, this is not my life. This is not yeah. my life. I've proven myself. I've done my job. We need to go be happy. I can't be depressed in this job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then you started applying to the position out, yep. outside of it. So what I did first is I got myself a mentor internally. Okay. Outside of my team. Mm-hmm. Because my company is huge. And at the same time, I knew that I needed to talk to someone. Yes. Was it easy to find someone to talk to? Because sometimes in big organizations, you want to talk to someone, but it's just like, who who can I trust in this? I'm lucky because we have a mentorship program at work. So there's a portal where everybody that wants to be a mentor goes and puts their profile. So let's say if I want a mentor, I'm going to go build my profile and I'm going to say, this is my experience. This is what I bring to the table and I want to mentor you. So I chose a Canadian woman who lives in the U.S. Because <laughs> at the time I was thinking, <laughs> maybe I'll move back to the U.S. You're really attached to moving back to the U.S. And I think it also comes from this idea of wanting to live in Montreal because of yeah. the smallest of the city and like opportunities. So, okay. Exactly. I, it goes yeah. back to that whole opportunity thing. Because mm-hmm. for me, as long as I was in Montreal, I wasn't going to be around the decision makers. And I want to be around yeah. the decision makers. Unless I decided to go work for a Montreal startup. So that yeah. was always the vision. Until I met somebody who doesn't want to leave <laughs> so I guess you're referring to, to your partner right now. Yes. <laughs> okay. But at the time when I had my mentor, I I was still like, maybe I'll move to the US one day. So she's a Canadian in the US and she's been at the company for a few years. Cause also I didn't want somebody mm-hmm. who had done their whole career at the company because I wanted them to be neutral. I wanted them to be able to mm-hmm. say this is good, but Maybe there's something better outside. Yes. And, but her, I chose her because she talks about the future of work and she's into HR and she's into finding the job that you love and etc, etc. And so I was like a person who every day preaches about the future of work and about leveraging your strengths and about working your passion cannot recommend me to stay in a job I don't like. (laughs) So so that's why I chose her. So then we spoke and then we kind of were like, okay, well, let's, 
see, let's explore if this is going to work. And we'll just have monthly touch bases. And mm-hmm. I honestly think it's why I'm still where I am because I would have quit before that. So we'll she just... helped you build a strategy to navigate around have another opportunity with another yeah. team? So she would mm-hmm. introduce me to a lot of people so I could talk to them. Oh, I know okay. this person. I know this person. I know this person. Talk to them so you can That's explore. really great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she would also help me put things into perspective because sometimes, once again, I wasn't sure if, am I crazy to feel this way? Or is there a problem? <laughs> you actually really deserve a job where I feel like my competences are being served, my knowledge is being served, you know? Yeah. And some things would happen in the workplace or like I'm dealing with a project or something like that. And she was just a, a good person to bounce off of ideas who understood how the company worked and could guide me and say, maybe do this, maybe do that. Maybe talk to this person, maybe talk to that person. So she just made it okay for me to explore other options. Because at the same mm. time, my manager was no, I would rather you stay here. How can I make you happy so that you stay on this team? But contained, you know, like, how can I make you happy? But also contained in the petit cadre that I've given you. I haven't imagined any other future for you apart from the one that you yes. have here, right? Yes, exactly. Especially because mm-hmm. my role, even though when we started it, we were junior, it's a role that most people can do for 10 years, 15 years, because mm. technology always evolves. So you can always yes. learn the technology and you can always pitch it different ways. So there are people who do it for a career, but I just knew I wasn't that person that was going to do it for a career. So trying to explain that yes. to her was really hard. And so my mentor, she made it easy for me to It's so step interesting outside because she's a manager. I'm like, that. what's hard to understand? <laughs> but anyways, that's another conversation. So how were you able to kind of identify what was for you? You know, like, was it to, like by being, by talking to different people and experimenting different position? Because how many positions did you uh, go through until you got this one? Does this one also feel comfortable? Could you say that right now you're at a place, you've kind of created alignment where you wanted to go and where you are now? Yeah. So I must have applied to 10 internal jobs and oh, wow. I interviewed for, yeah, this took a while. It took me like another year, but I was like, mm. it's okay. Like I'll just, so I would just always be looking and see like, oh, this looks interesting. This looks interesting. And I interviewed for two jobs before that, that I didn't get. And so this one was the third one that mm. I interviewed for. And and I love my new job. Yes, because like, you got this new position earlier this year, right? Yeah, at the of the <laughs> so year. So congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. And the reason that I enjoy it, first of all, is that I'm on a global team. So going back to Montreal, mm-hmm. feeling small and mm-hmm. the way life turns out different sometimes. In my company, we do a lot of remote work. We did remote work yes. before COVID. COVID, <laughs> uh, yeah. And so doing remote work, before COVID allows the company to tap into talent wherever they are. I could yes. be in Canada, I could be in the US, I could be whatever. Distance doesn't become so important. And you can also leave Montreal whenever you want. Yeah. <laughs> but now that I'm in this global role, first I feel better because everybody is international. And so I'm going mm. back to my comfort zone. I'm on a team of five and one person is American, one person is French but lives in Asia. One person is Chinese, but lives in the UK. One person is Turkish, mm-hmm. lives in Dubai. It's so uh, interesting because you're rebuilding the international school that you grew up in. Oh, creating that atmosphere in your work environment is what exactly. gives you comfort and, what, exactly. and also what allows you to thrive in your workspace. 
Yeah, exactly. So my coworkers are all different and I'm comfortable with that because for them, the way that they will experience their lives are all different. So I feel like in a way it also makes it okay for me to be different. Whereas I feel like here in my old team, there was a norm and I had to fit to the norm. Yes. And, and I didn't fit the norm. Then it was awkward. But mm. once again, here in my new team, I'm back to a situation where we can redefine what the norm is. Yes. And so that makes me already just mentally happier. Mm. And then the job in itself as well is more interesting because now we're looking at the world and we're looking at how our technology works in different countries, how different customers use it. Oh, I studied international business eight years ago, but now I'm doing international business. Yeah, you're actually yeah, practicing and, it. And now I'm like, this is great. This is what I wanted to do, but I didn't know mm. this is what I wanted to do. Had I not gone through all of these different linear and mishaps. It's <laughs> very linear journey. And talking yeah. about things that aren't linear and hearing so much about your professional journey and those little failures, but also disappointment and the patience that it required for you to get where you are, I'm definitely even more inspired by like your journey and who you are. When you make time and make space to listen to the stories that you don't see and, and that people don't tell, it makes yeah. it complete, right? So you're able yeah, to see exactly. people as, um, as a whole, you know, and and I'm curious about what led you in that same process, in that same last years and last months to like also have the desire to give birth to this podcast at the same time. Because I feel like mm. there were so many things happening. And how did you also find time to create this platform? And, and what was the initial intention? Why were you craving that space? It started out of a place for my mental sanity, honestly, truly. Mm. Because I felt really alone and really isolated. And mm-hmm. I've always wanted to be that person who wants to be the CEO of a huge company. I always the say boss. Like, I want to be the boss. <laughs> I'm always looking for the decision makers. And it's not out of, it is ambition, but for me, it's how much impact we, can I have in this world? We went from looking for tables to building our own tables. <laughs> That's yeah, exactly. But it's also about the decision. It's about decision makers. And it's about being in a space where you have impact. <clears throat> and so for me, the way I look at it is if I have 40 hours in the week, la, those 40 hours better be in a place where I have the most impact. And even looking for mm. this role, the impact I'm having now compared to the impact I was having in my old role, the scale is very different. The number mm-hmm. of people I'm touching are very different. And so for me, that's always what I'm looking for. And I guess that's why I kind of seek leadership roles or directions that would eventually lead me to leadership roles because it's like what is the impact that I'm having let's make Mm -hmm. use of this time so I felt really isolated and there's also this discussion in our communities like black communities African communities of always doing oh I don't want to be on that table let me go build my own table or oh corporation starts let me be let me go be like an entrepreneur let me go work in a small businesses but I wonder what percentage of that is because we feel like we cannot succeed in these spaces Mm. because there is so much pushback Mm. against us in these spaces that you end up choosing your own mental sanity at the end and you're like you know what this doesn't matter let me just go do my own thing and so I was kind of exploring that because I was getting at a point where I didn't want to be CEO anymore (laughs) I was like I don't want to work for a big company anymore and I I'm tired of the politics. I'm tired of all these people. Let me go do my own thing. And so for me, it was like, but I've always wanted to be in a big company, lead hundreds of thousands of people. But here I am now thinking, let me do something else. So it was that question more. 
-hmm. there's something very precious that you're saying. It's realizing that we want to be in leadership roles. We want to be making decisions. We want to be there where we can create an impact and where we can influence. And sometimes it happens at big tables and sometimes it happens at very, very small scale too, right? Yeah. And we're able to, like being able to influence like two or three people or a small community, it's still a huge impact that maybe we don't value as like being able to influence like, I don't know, a thousand of people, but also how do you maintain that, right? Like it's like, exactly. how do you maintain that? How do you create sustainability in that? And and there is, I think there is power in both. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And it goes back to, you have to figure out what, what works for you. What do you want to do? And so I was having all these questions and I was also feeling really isolated. Nobody could understand what I was going through. And so I would have mm. calls with my girlfriend and we would all back each other up. I think we've even had these conversations with you where it's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Even in the interview, <laughs> we talk about it. Like, that it sounds a lot like our conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can I, can I dig a little bit more into the isolation feeling that you were yes. feel, like, you know, that we're um, having at that moment? And I'm wondering, was it in Montreal or in New York? And what specifically were you looking for or not finding that made you feel isolated? Oh, that's actually a good question. Now they brought up New York. Okay, so I was isolated in two ways. One, it was in the workplace because I felt like outside of the workplace, I could have this honest conversation with my girlfriend about mm. what was happening. But these were not conversations I could have with my coworkers, you know, mm-hmm. not go tell them all about unconscious bias and how they're treating me differently and why are they not treating mm-hmm. me like the guy I started with because you don't do that in the workplace. Then I become the awkward woman. Then I become the angry black woman. And so yeah. I felt like in my, in the workplace, I had to put on this professional, happy super joyful person even though accessible kind black women to be like more yeah more respected yeah whereas sometimes I just want to call them out and be like guys this is unacceptable and so that was one form of isolation and then the second isolation which led me to focusing on Africans is Mm. when I was in the U.S. there were a few other black people in my program and so there were like Americans but then there were Africans who are American. And I expected to have a sense of community with them. So I guess that's what we're always looking for, right? We're always looking for community. So I expected that the Africans who were born and raised in the US, I would still bond with them. Yeah. But I didn't. But I didn't bond with them to the level that I thought I would bond with them. I felt they were more comfortable with the Black Americans because they are all American than me, the African who was a foreigner. You know what I mean? Like, the Rwandan mm-hmm. who just came from Canada. And so there too, I felt there was a bit of a gap in our shared experiences, which is normal. But whereas we were all Black and we were all minorities, but in how we understood the American system, where we understood here, like I'm back in Canada, we understood the Canadian system. The experience was not the same as having been born there and had access to some of the resources that I had no clue about, that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. So that kind of then led to me saying, okay, well, I want to find other Africans, first generation, or where it's that experience of moving is still kind of re- recent because of basically yeah. to find people like me who were trying to figure it out. We don't know what we're yes. doing. We don't really have anybody to like guide us and help us. And <laughs> yes. No, I feel you. One of the things that I've also struggled, and I think a lot of people who 
our African from like first generation are struggling with is this how do you build space between assimilation, which is cater for white people's needs, but also mold yourself into that very approachable, kind and pleasant black person. And on the other spectrum, there is all of these other black experiences that you don't understand and can relate to, even if you force yourself, right? So like you're in this middle of the spectrum and you actually like don't understand where you, your, your place and where do you belong in this? How do we create space for our own identities to be respected and to be seen and heard in a spectrum that just never thought about our, our existence for a different reason, right? Because, because yeah. having African who have lived in different countries and speak different languages is still something that I think people are still sometimes surprised of, you know? Yeah. But it's also, of course, it comes from a place of having a lot of privilege, which is mo- the majority of Black people don't yeah. have access to that much privilege, right? So yeah. it, as much as, it's, as it shocks yeah. other Black communities, sometimes it also shocks white people too, right? But it's like, okay, we can't, after the shock, okay? Yeah, now that you know that I speak different languages, that I've lived in four or five countries, where do I belong? And that sense of belonging, it's crucial, I I think, in this context where there is more and more African who looks like you and who looks like me and still have to build this place in that spectrum, you know? Yeah. And I wanted to have a space where we can talk about this. We get each other. Like, I don't want you to question me. This is not a question. This is a fact. (laughs) Whether you don't get it. I wanted to have a place where it's like, yeah, I hear you. Because I think that we spend most of the time explaining ourselves. So it's nice to just have other people that just get it and yes, true. just have that conversation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering, in that journey of building your podcast, I'm pretty sure that you were scared when you were about to launch this project. And how were you able to push your mind to go beyond fear? What were the things that you were telling yourself? Uh, what was useful? And, and also, who were the people around you who were inspiring you to nourish and push that project to you? The, the net topics. Yeah. So first I'll say I probably produced it one year too late because I, I had mm. been thinking about it for a long time, but I kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it out of fear, out of procrastination, out of this thing is not even bringing me money. I need money first. Let me start it. I, <laughs> girl, girl, I even went and started a whole business. So the podcast I started in 2019. Yeah. In 2018, I went and built the whole business. I started an e-commerce shop. Instead of working on the podcast, for real, like people um, who have studied business are like, you know, like, you know, it follows you everywhere. (laughs) But, well, I believe in God. I'm a person of faith and I felt like it was something that I had to do. I was just feeling convicted. I was just like, this is what you have to do. It was just sitting there. It was on my heart. I had to do it. And I kept pushing it back. And I think at one point, it just, just go for it. And I think that's also a big driver, I guess, because it's like, well, if I just do it, then let me just do it and see what happens. But I'm also lucky that I have very good friends in my life that always encourage my crazy ideas and that Mm -hmm. volunteered to be on the podcast and that see the value in it. And that kind of reminded me that even if I do it and I don't like it, I can stop. It's not a failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have to do it forever. I'm not signing a, a, like a life sentence. Mm-hmm. And that also reminded me that it would help more than just myself. It would help other people. And so that was really the main driver for me finally going for it. But I also just felt like, yeah, I had to do it. I didn't want to be like, what if? 
you're making me think of the fact that because we live in a very capitalist system and also yeah. you study business, right? So like the, yeah. this mindset of selling and buying it has always been and consuming has always been part of your studies, part of your experiences. It also shaped us like society at a larger scale where we sometimes forget that we can just do things not to sell and buy, but just because they bring joy to our exactly. heart, you know? Yeah. And as you were saying, if things stop bringing joy to your heart, you can just stop. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you can just stop. And it's rare. It's very rare to see people just doing things because they want to just explore passion and joy and, and like live the capital right behind or yeah. like not think about the capital all the time. Right. Yeah, and I'm, exactly. And I'm like interested in knowing now that you've left that capital because you didn't bring it in that podcast, what did you discover in yourself and also in the stories that you were collecting? What are maybe the precious learnings that you've made so far? Well, I guess practically speaking, it's a lot of work. Oh my God. I think mm. if I had yeah. known how much work goes into podcasting, I don't think I would have done it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I also have a very demanding job. And so it's a lot of work. I wasn't ready for it. And I ended up getting an editor to help me and ETC. But the good thing I've discovered is that I started it because I was like, I think there's something here. But now I have the confirmation that there is something here. Yes, and yes. Like, now I just need to scale it. Because I think, like you said, mm-hmm. there are more and more people like us. And I don't think that this experience that we have is only for us. So it's mm-hmm. how do I scale this so that it can reach more people and, yeah, and, and motivate more people? Because this is a question that's only going to get more and more intense in the next couple of years because of globalization. It's also like a good reminder of how human we are. Yes. Look at all of the episodes, let's say you summarize them. Yes, we're Africans, but they're all episodes around like resilience, around mm-hmm. hope, around doing your best, about following your gut and your intuition. So mm-hmm. at the core of it, it's a beautiful story of humanity. And it's mm. and that's been my biggest surprise, let's say. Like I knew it, but it's now I have it in my face. It's so interesting because it's making me think of, you know, like I was referring to the spectrum, right? And how do we build a space for us? And I feel like building a space for our stories is a way to to build that space, right? Yeah. Being able yeah. to hear those stories, recognize them and share them, right? Mm-hmm. Is a way for people to know that we exist. And Blackness is so diverse, right? There's That's so many exactly. different experiences of being Black, right? And I feel like all of them have their their place in the spectrum and each of those experiences should be heard, but I'm also very happy that our experience is also shared, right? Yeah, and exactly. that you were able to create that space for people who have that same background and are still looking into their identities and what does it mean to move from your, from your home and start a new life in a different country and look for a job and be a minority, be a, the, last, the, the only Black woman or the only Black men. Like, what does that mean? And what are the challenges, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And having that African background too, because it's not always the same. If you grew up here in Quebec your whole life as a black person, sometimes you know how to you know how to navigate around Quebecois better than yeah. people who just arrived exactly. here, right? It's still yeah. uh, there are things that we don't share because our incapacity to sometimes hear each other in in different black communities. But also, yes. I feel like when we do learn those things, it's great that yeah. we share them in our own yeah. community. So 
Yeah, and I'm I think- now too because I've had to answer that question a lot from other black people. Like, why am I focusing on Africans? And it, guys, I'm not rejecting you. I'm not mm. rejecting the black Americans or the black Canadians or the Caribbean. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying that, like you said, blackness is not one thing. There are many different ways of being black. So for now, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to highlight is my fellow Africans because I think that there are complexities that come. Even in being African, it's yeah. so <laughs> complex, right? Like, <laughs> like it's, so di- it's so different too. Yeah, our continent is so huge and there is a huge cultural component that also makes it super hard because, for example, Nigerian culture or Ghanaian culture are very different. They, they have similarities, but they're different. If you put them with the Rwandan culture, that's even more different or South African culture. But when we're all here, it's like, okay, we have those cultures, but we have all these other cultures. So it's like, yeah, like it's so complex. So I just wanted to make space for that. I think if I was to go back mm. to school, I was, I was joking with my partner about that. I think I would do like a PhD in anthropology, explore third culture kids from an African context because the research that's not that's out right now is with Americans, right? Americans yeah. who lived in Africa or who lived in Asia and went back to the US. But I'd be so curious to see what is that experience when you're an African kid from I don't know, mm. from Cameroon or from Cameroon, you know, versus from Rwanda. So maybe yes. I don't know. We'll see. New project building up. That's great. I don't know. You know I don't... Just waiting for you to drop another podcast that, or, like, or like you know, another uh, PhD thesis or whatever. And he was like, <laughs> you, know? you know, if you do a PhD, you're signing up to be the expert. That's all you're going to do for the rest of your yes. life. Are you ready for that? Yeah. And I was like, we already have an audience. So we're already here. So we're we're just we're just waiting. Like, we're just know. waiting. I don't, I don't know. Yet. So my last question is that now that you have you you're sharing that. You have now more than ever the confirmation that there is something here. Yes. There's something here to explore. And I, I want to know what is it that you're very excited to explore more in this project that you have in, in this podcast? Is there specific subjects, specific topics, people, stories that you're really excited to be able to dive uh, more into? And I feel like one, you just mentioned one, which is... Uh, being a third culture kid coming from Africa, there's a lack of stories and there's a lack of knowledge around it. It's not well documented, and I feel like that's one thing maybe that I'm hearing, and and I'm and I'm curious if there are, there are other things. Yeah, definitely that one. Um, I'm I'm just thinking about. It. I don't know yet what that will look like. Next, I want to also talk to. So like let's say for like next season, I want to talk to two people. I want to add three paths, so people who went back home, because I think that that's always the question that we have on our minds, right? That's always a conflict. Do I stay here? Do I? Go? Yeah. When you declined the job in Nairobi, if it was a higher salary, I would still have the, the what if question in my head if I was. <laughs> uh, if it was a higher salary, I totally would have gone. Yes. But looking back on it, it wasn't the right. No, thing. looking back on it, yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, exactly. But I'm just like, you know, like but at the time, I was devastated, Fabula. I was so yeah. ready. I was like, I'm ready to bounce. I just want to go back in the sun. I was devastated. Yeah. I was like, why did I even go to this stupid, expensive MBA? For <laughs> it, uh, life. Yeah. But, but then um, again, it's how after living ten years in North America or like in the Western world, like how do we sometimes romanticize? going back home, you know, like the repat stories. And I feel like that's a great space to also hear those, those stories that are less silver lined. And <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm trying to, I'm going to try to get 
people who went and stayed and then people who went and came back because that mm. both exist mm-hmm. right because it's hard to go back everybody knows about it like if we talk about it honestly once again you're going to go back but you don't necessarily think like that anymore we've been influenced by how we live here i am reminded of it every time i go back to mm. work it's like you're not acting right michaela fix this so <laughs> So it's like you have to re remold yourself into this at the first yes, or consistently yeah there's a learning curve right so i want to see mm-hmm. people who have learned and adapted and are now very happy and very comfortable but also the people who tried it one year two years and were like thanks but no thanks yes just to come back here because i think there is value in both stories and it's in mm-hmm. knowing yourself right and then the other people that i would like to explore are word leaders. So going back again to how I was telling you I want to make impact and I think you need to be sitting at the big table. At least that's how I see myself making impact one day hopefully when I get out of the universe. So for those African leaders that did do that and that are one of the only in those high positions, what's the experience like for them? Because I'm already struggling where I am. Well, I'm not struggling anymore, but I was struggling where I am, but I'm sure I'll struggle again in the future. How did they mm-hmm. not give up? How did they keep going? And mm-hmm. that's what I, I would like to explore as well. Hmm. Well, this is making me very excited for the next season. And, so and the next season. <laughs> it's really great. It's just really great to hear from you, but also to hear the, the journey that you were on and that what inspired you and what pushed you and, and shaped you yeah. into becoming the person that you are. And I feel like all of the stories make sense to me. I, listening to was like when you're listening to a partition and you're trying to put like the right sounds at the right moment and grateful for that. I'm grateful for um, here also like the stories that we don't hear, the failures, the doubts, the mental breakdown. Yeah. And also what are the strategies that you've put in place to navigate around your own company and yeah, to, to move from, from a place where you were feeling contained and, and not seen to like being now on a, on a team that is uh, global with people who still represent what are strong references to you, right? Yeah. So people who have different mindset, different ways of thinking, different ways of working, right? And you gave me so many great advices. Without, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, like if I'm, in, if I'm in that position, if I have to apply for my dream job, there's different ways that I could do it. But now I know... I know a way. Yeah. <laughs> I know a way that you know it could also could also be that right, and it's not yeah. always easy. As you were saying, it's not a not to say that it's going to be an easy path, but you know sometimes it, you have to give each other tips and tricks to kind of survive in in a world that does that wasn't built for us to thrive and to succeed, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, thank you so much. This was fun. Thank you too. Thank you too. So that's it, friends. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation between Fabiola and myself, since you had only gotten to hear snippets and here and there about my story. Stay tuned for season two. Don't hesitate to comment on Instagram, join the Facebook group so that you can keep in touch and know what's happening. So hope you enjoyed it, share it, rate the podcast. Thank you and see you soon. What did you think of the conversation that you just heard? Don't hesitate to leave us comments on the Facebook group or on the website jazzavicmoi.com. 
As the old adage goes, sharing is caring. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends, like and subscribe. Until next time, keep striving, keep thriving and keep shining.